There was a man, a wealthy and powerful man, who lived in a high-rise in the center of the largest city in his country. He was up on the top of that high-rise, a building that he owned, looking out over the view spread out before him when he noticed in the building right next door, a couple of stories down, there was a woman lounging in the sun. It was a warm afternoon. He saw her and was immediately attracted to her. Now, he was a married man. He knew that she was also married. And yet he was, did I say, rich and powerful? He summoned her and had her come over to his place. Soon they began an affair, an adulterous affair. A few weeks went by. And she announced that she was pregnant. Her husband, though, was on, uh, was, in was on duty. He was an officer serving in the army in a faraway battle in the front lines of the, heated, of the, of the heaviest battle. And so this man, the rich and powerful one who lived in the high-rise, he had connections in the government, and he had the officer. The officer in the army brought back. The idea was for this officer to spend a few days with his wife in, in their home. You see what he was trying to do? He was going to cover his tracks. You understand the story? Well, the man who came back, the officer who came back, he refused to go see his wife to even go, go and visit her, say, say hello or anything, because he was so loyal to his, his soldiers on the front. He was so loyal to his country, so loyal to the rulers that he could not even imagine could not imagine spending time with his wife and family while his soldiers were giving of their best, some of them even dying in battle. And so he instead went to the seat of the government and demanded to speak to the general saying, I want to go back, please send me back. He spent night after night after night with the same plea saying, would you please send me back? Please, my men, they need me. I'm their officer in charge. I'm their leader. I'm so worried about them, desperate to get back to them. Finally, the man, the wealthy rich one in the high rise, heard about what was going on, and so he took this officer out to dinner and frankly got him drunk. His mind, his thinking was, if I can get this man drunk, then he'll just stumble on home to his wife, at least spend one night with them, and my sin will be covered. But the man, even in his drunkenness, the officer, refused to go home. Instead, he went back to the seat of the government. At this point, the, the man in charge, the, man, the wealthy man with the large high-rise and all the power and all the money finally said, forget it, send him back. He had connections. He called the generals. Send him back. But not just to where his soldiers are camping, where he can give commands. No, send him to the battle. Put him in the middle of it, right in the middle of it. They did. And as you can imagine, the officer was killed soon after he arrived in that place. Well, at that point, the rich man just breathed a sigh of relief, thought everything's covered, everything's fine. He took the woman that he had had the affair with and made her his wife, and he breathed deeply. Everything's fine now. Uh, this one, he also sort of perceived himself as kind of a pious person, a religious person. He, he enjoyed the attention of many of the famous preachers from around. They would come and tell him often how wonderful he was, how brilliant his leadership was, how his wealth was a sign of God's blessing in his life, and these sort of things. And so he liked to be around these preachers, but there was this one preacher. His name was Nathan. He was kind of an irritating one, and he really didn't like him. But Nathan called him up and said, I'd like to come by and see you. I have a problem I need your help with. Could you please come and, 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 and visit with me? And, and may, I, may I come and see you rather and, and, and talk to you about this issue I'm trying to deal with? I need your advice. Well, he couldn't believe it. This, this preacher, the one who'd been such an irritant, now was coming to him for advice, for help, for guidance on, on what to do. Sure, come on and see me. Rode the elevator up to the top, sat down in this ornate office, got a little bit of a conversation. And then he said, here's the issue. You see, there is this 
very wealthy farmer who owns 10,000 acres on the outside of town. He lives right next door to a, a farmer who owns just, oh, about 10 acres. And this wealthy farmer with the big, huge farm, with the thousands of acres, he was throwing a party, a barbecue, for a hundred of his closest friends. And he, told, he promised him it would be roasted lamb. But this, this guy with all the land and the huge farm, he knew that his neighbor, with just a little bit of land, just enough land to grow some crops, to feed his family, to have enough money to pay the bills and buy the kids a new pair of shoes every year, he had this beautiful lamb that wasn't for the slaughter, that wasn't to be taken in that way. It was a family pet. They had grown close to it. It had become part of their family. They loved it. But this man, he thought, that's got to be the finest lamb I've ever seen. I want to serve that to, to my guests for the barbecue. And so he sent some of his men in the middle of the night to break in and steal that lamb and bring it back. And before the little farmer next door knew what had happened, the rich man had slaughtered the lamb and served it to his guests. Well, the man at the top of the high rise, the man with all the money and all the power and the wealth and everything else, flew into a rage. He was angry and upset and couldn't believe this had happened. Who is that man? I want to know. I've got some lawyers. I've got some connections in the government. I'll say to it that that man is brought to justice. Who is it? Tell me. Nathan, the preacher, stands up, looks right at him. He says, it's you. Now, by now, you may have recognized the story. It's the story of King David and the woman that he saw bathing next door to the palace named Bathsheba. Isn't it fascinating, though, as we pause here for just a moment to look at how the Bible is still relevant? That story is 3,000 years old. And I bet some of you might have been thinking, oh, I can think of a Republican or a Democrat who fits that role. I bet you can think of somebody who's conservative or liberal who fits that role. I can easily name several men, could we not? Several men who have used and abused their power to do, get whatever they want from women or other ways. The Bible? Not relevant? Oh my goodness. If we pay attention to the stories, they actually have something to say to us today. The story goes on. David, Nathan, the prophet, the preacher, he says to King David, the rich and wealthy, powerful man, the king of Israel, he says, David, do you not understand what has happened you forgot. You forgot who you are. You forgot where you've come from. You were the youngest of Jesse's sons. You were that skinny little guy at the end of row of all those big, powerful warriors. You're the one that God chose. God looked at you and didn't see your skinny little arms. He saw one who would grow to be a great military leader. He, he, God blessed you with your leadership and political skill. God blessed you with might and wisdom and strength. And you forgot. You were from Bethlehem, a little nothing town in the middle of nowhere, a little village that no one even looks at or stops in. And now you're in the seat of power in Jerusalem, the largest city in, in, in all of Israel. You forgot. How often are our mistakes, our failures, our sins, we might even say in a soft voice, a result of forgetfulness? How many times have you yelled at your wife or your husband or your kids or a parent or somebody and then later gone back to them? In fact, I'll bet you a donut. I, I like donuts. <laughs> I'll bet you a donut that when you did that, you went back and said, I don't know what happened. I wasn't myself. That's not who I am. I'm sorry. Don't raise your hand, but have you done that? then you understand. Sometimes the root of our biggest issues in life is the simple fact that we forget. 
we forget who we are and, the, and the, the ethics and the rules and the laws and the distinctions by which we live. And it's that forget, forgetfulness that is so often, so often the root of our failures. By the way, just another aside from that story too, the man who was the officer who was sent off to the battle who was killed, Bathsheba's husband, his name was Uriah the Hittite. That may not mean anything to you, but a Hittite was a foreigner. This man named Uriah was serving under King David. He was following David's God, Israel's God. The hero in the story is the foreigner, the outsider, the one who is not from their land. Isn't it fascinating how the Bible, again, speaks 3,000 years later? In God's inclusiveness, in God's understanding of all of God's children being welcome, it is the outsider in the Bible itself who becomes the hero, who is the one who, end up, who ends up giving his life in the name of his king, of his country, and of his God. Well, now fast forward to hundreds of years later to the text that we read just a few moments ago from Micah chapter 6. In Micah's day, things actually are, pretty, are going pretty well. The attendance at the temple is up. The offering plates are overflowing with shekels. The budget's doing great. There are people coming left and right into the temple, filling up the committees and the councils and all those kinds of things. There's sort of a religious revival taking hold in all of Israel. And it looks wonderful, but Micah, Micah knows what's really going on. Micah can see what's happening. In chapter 2 especially of his book, he starts preaching. And he gets right in their face and he lets them know the way you're behaving and living is not acceptable to the Lord. And what were they doing? It's quite simple, really. The rich were getting richer on the backs of the poor. The rich were stepping on the, on the backs of the poor to elevate themselves, to line their pockets, to fill their bank accounts. And what were they doing? Simple land grabs. Simple land grabs. Imagine for a moment that I'm a farmer, and this land up here, on this space up here on the chancel uh, represents my little 10-acre farm. And what they did in antiquity is they'd go to the corner, each of the corners of the boundaries of the farm, and I would, I would mark it. If I'm the farmer, I'd mark it, say with three stones stacked and then two stones and then one. And that three, two, one stacking and the way they were set on each corner would let you know this is Glenn's farm. What would happen is in the middle of the night, a nearby farmer, one with thousands of acres, thinking, oh, that land is really nice. I want to take that land over, would come and send, send his men in the middle of the night to knock down those stones and then place his own markers, ones representing his farm, around and take over that 10 acres. And then, of course, the little farmer would go into the judge and say, judge, I can't believe this. My little farm's been taken over by this man with thousands of acres. You've got to stand up for me. But what happens, of course? The man with the big farm has the big dollars. He's already paid off the judge. That was happening all over Micah's my, all, all over Israel in Micah's day. Micah's furious about it. He's upset about it. He calls them wicked and evil and shakes his fingers and kind of gets in their case. And they, they finally just say, don't preach. Don't preach. By the way, I've heard that before, just so you know. <laughs> See, Micah was a great preacher. I hear those words after a bad sermon. Micah, he doesn't give little cute stories about his kids. He doesn't quote some scholar. He doesn't show a, a, a clip from a movie up on a screen and, and, and entertain everybody. No, 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 no. He's constant and continuous. This is not who we are. This is not who God has called us to be. We must stop. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. It's basically the same sermon, different verse. He just goes after them constantly, constantly. They're just furious with him until we get to 6, to the 6th chapter and we notice a shift. They, they begin to change. 
The first two verses of the reading was the presentation of the case. These people have forgotten who they are. And then God speaks and God essentially says, do you not remember? I called you out of Egypt. You were slaves in Egypt. You were no one from nowhere. You had nothing. And yet I called you through the gifts of Moses. I led you through the wilderness into the promised land. And now, now you're taking advantage of those who are in your very place in Egypt. You've forgotten who you are. Do you hear the theme again? It's forgetfulness. When we forget who we are and whose we are and where we're from and where we're going, that's when the, the temptation comes in. That's when the desire to do something that we know is stupid somehow takes over. When Julie and I were first married, we'd been married about a year. I said something cruel and mean and, and just terrible to her. I said it to her and she was in the kitchen. She had a knife in one hand and a piece of lettuce in the other. Thank God she threw the lettuce at me, not the knife. And then I said to her, honey, I'm so sorry. I know what I promised you when we made those vows on our wedding day at First Christian Church in San Francisco. I, I remember and I failed in my arrogance, in my terrible words. I'm sorry. You see, when we forget the vow, when we forget the promise, when we forget the calling, that's when we find ourselves caught up in the, in the stupid behavior. The, 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 the people in Micah's day, they're starting to get it. Here we are at sixth chapter, they're starting to understand, they're, they're starting to realize that, okay, we understand, so what do we have to do? And I hope you heard the reading. What, what, what did it say? Well, sh what should we give you then, Lord? What should we bring to you? Shall we bring you 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall we bring you 10,000 shekels? Shall we bring you, what do we bring you? Do you hear what they're saying? We don't know exactly what to do, but maybe, maybe perhaps we can, we can buy our way into your favor. Perhaps we can just increase our pledge. Maybe perhaps we can give you uh, $10,000 or $10 million or $20 million or maybe even, and this was in the text, maybe we'll just give you our firstborn child and it's, it's meant to be an exaggeration. Don't take it literally. It's like they're saying, what is it you want? Take, take it all. We want to be back in your good stead, Lord. Have you ever done that? Have you ever taken a moment when you really wanted something and tried to bargain with God? You know, Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this gift to the church or the charity or whatever it is. If you could just get this lined up for me over here. Have you ever done that? You can watch a preacher on Sunday morning and some of them will tell you, yeah, you can do that. If you'll make a, a faith gift, usually it's to them, <clears throat> then God will give you healing. And if you haven't been healed, then you haven't shown enough faith and you, made it, maybe you need to make a bigger gift. These guys all have perfect hair, perfect teeth, perfect clothes, and perfect posture. I really can't stand those parts about them. I just the part that bugs me the most. I've seen this happen, though. I've seen it directly. Several years ago, when I was pastor at a church in Kansas City, a wedding couple came to see me. I need to let you know about the church there. The church is this beautiful Gothic style cathedral, very long center aisle. And so because of that, it became sort of a wedding venue. Many people, I guess two-thirds to three-quarters of the weddings were uh, visitors, not members of the church, which was fine because while we were there, we discovered that was a good way to uh, bring in new members. Many of them would discover the church and say, oh, this is a great church. We want to be a part of it. And they would join. It was also a source of income for the congregation. All of it was good. But because there were so many weddings, sometimes as many as 100 a year, what the clergy would do is we'd sit down in December and we'd divide up all the weekends all the way through the year so that each pastor was assigned a different weekend. 
First weekend in January was Glenn, second weekend in January was Carla, third weekend was Catherine, fourth weekend in January was George. Those were the pastors I worked with there. And so when uh, Bobby and Susie would sign up for a wedding on the second Sunday of January, Carla would be assigned to them as their pastor. Now, if you were a member of the church, you could make a request, but non-members would get whoever was assigned them as a way to just share all the weddings out through, through the year. Well, this one couple came to see me, and they, they brought the bride's parents. And they sat down in my office. Everybody was smiles. I really wasn't quite sure what they, they'd come to see me about, but the mother of the bride, warning, The mother of the bride said, Pastor Glenn, we think you're wonderful. Second warning. <clears throat> I wanted to say, oh, I hear that all the time. Please, go ahead. She went on. She said, you know, in our tradition, in the church where we're from, um, we have only male ministers. And we're assigned for that second weekend coming up. And, and Carla is the pastor who is, is doing our service. She seems like a very fine person, but we'd really prefer a man. And, and like we said, we think you're great. We love your sermons. We love your style. And would you please do, the, do us the honor of, of being the, the pastor for our, our daughter's wedding? I said, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. My tone was calm and, and polite. I said, thank you very much. But um, in this church, we believe that women and men are equal. And we believe that in ministry, women and men experience an equal call. And if I were to reassign a woman from one of our weddings in order to assign a man, a man because simply you wanted a man, I'd be going against the teaching of this church, and I really cannot do that. I just can't. Well, we went back and forth a little bit more, and there was some more disagreement and, some, and discussion, and I, I basically said the same thing. I said, I, I'm sorry. I, I cannot go against this church's teaching. We firmly believe this is true. If I, if I reschedule, then I'm basically saying that Carla's ordination is invalid, and I will not do that. The woman reached down. We were sitting around a table in my office, found her purse, set it on the table, opened her purse, pulled out her checkbook, and said, how big does the check need to be? My tone of voice changed a bit. And I said, that's the most offensive thing that's ever been done in my office. You're dismissed. Leave now. A few days later, I reported this story to the board. I wanted the governing board of the church to know what had happened and what I'd done, and that I'd followed the church's policy, just in case they'd heard any stories on the street, as, as it were. And I told them exactly the same story I just told you. And then the board chair leaned out and said, how big was the check? <laughs> it's a true story. It's a true story. You see, sometimes we think we can bargain with God. Sometimes we can think, well, what is it you want, God? You want this, you want that, you want something else? I'll make a deal with you. If you'll do this for me, I'll do this for you. And how silly that is, how crazy that is. What God wants, as Micah goes on, is what? What is it God wants? Justice. The choir sang about it a moment ago. Kindness. And for us to walk with God and to walk with each other in respect and care. That's all. Micah wants him to see what God wants is justice. God doesn't want you stealing the poor man's farm. God doesn't want the, the poor pushed aside. God doesn't want you yelling at your wife, your husband, your kids, your mom, your dad. God, what God wants is justice, kindness, and a humble walk. You might recall the end, towards the end of the Gospel of Luke, in Jesus' story as he is arriving in Jerusalem on the day we call Palm Sunday. 
There's hosannas, glory to God, glory to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, hallelujah, Every, palm branches are waving, it's wonderful to pray. They make their way into Jerusalem. The parade is over, it's quieted down a little bit, and then Jesus comes into the temple. Remember the story? He comes, it's Palm Sunday, he comes into the temple, and what does he see everywhere, do you recall? Tables. All kinds of people are selling stuff, selling things all over the place, and Jesus just flies into a rage, and he turns over all the tables, and he throws out all the shopkeepers, tells them to get out of the house of the Lord. You're not to be in here. Every time I tell that story, by the way, somebody will come up to me and say, is it okay if we sell donuts in Brownlee Hall? Is that, is that okay? Of course it is. Do you know why Jesus was angry? You know why he was upset? Because the place where they were selling all their stuff was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was the space where these good, fine, faithful Jews had understood that some who would follow in the ways of Yahweh, who would follow in the God of Israel, could gather the Court of the Gentiles. There they could hear the sermon, they could hear the hymns and the anthem, they could participate in listening to the scripture and the prayers. But the, the people had, what had they done? They'd forgotten. They'd forgotten. They took over the space set aside so where, where everyone was to be welcome in the name of God, where everyone was to be included. And because of their forgetfulness, they failed. And they sinned. What does, what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord ask? Justice, kindness, a humble walk with each other. What does the Lord want? You.